Thanks, Ev. Mate, I, I actually had in mind um, from verse 17, not 7. Uh, I'm not sure if I maybe sent the wrong text. But then I saw his pat, so I uh, doesn't matter. He's got to go with all those kings' names. But, um, I'm just referring to them as the kings, you know, the four kings and the five kings. We're continuing uh, with uh, Genesis chapter 14 and 15 this morning. Uh, tests of faith in conflict and covenant. Last week we started on the Abram journey and discovered and, and we'll keep discovering as we go on uh, that God is sovereign and that God is in complete control that his ways are higher and his ways are better than ours and that no matter the circumstances from life threatening to uncomfortable decisions God is in control and we are called to trust in him and we are called to trust that he may allow things to happen that we think aren't very good, that aren't fair, that aren't right but that he has a purpose in it because he understands the eternal picture, the big world view. Uh, Rob left it off last week at the end of chapter 13 where Abraham, uh, Abram sorry, and his nephew Lot uh, had parted ways and Lot had chosen for himself what he thought was the best of the land and he settled over near Sodom where the people were wicked and Abram settled in Hebron in Canaan. Then chapter 14 starts uh, with this description of what we might call the first world war uh, the, of the known world at the time. And here's a bit of a map. I mean, we sort of looked at this last week with Rob of these kings over here in the east at, at Ur uh, around there and, and it mentions these four kings headed by uh, Kirtaloma and they head up north because of that desert there in the middle up to Haran and they come back down to where you might see the Dead Sea there, Moab and Edom. And it says there, there's a bit of a better picture here down the bottom there where Zor, Tamar, Sodom. Um, it says that they were subject, the five kings there in the, in, the, uh, in the south here were subject to these eastern kings. So obviously these kings had probably been there previously. Uh, they had probably a bit of a mob-like mentality, you know, you're between us and Egypt, uh, we want you to pay us taxes, you know, you need to pay us and we'll leave you alone, you can live in your cities but you need to pay us and we'll look after you, you sort of belong to us. And for 12 years this went on, they were subject to them and in the 13th year these southern kings sort of said that we've had enough, you know, we don't, we don't want to be doing this, we want to have a bit of freedom, we want to live how we want to live. And it says they rebelled. Well, the eastern kings don't like this. They're not getting their money probably anymore. And so they make their way up north and they come back down and they completely destroy them. They go to war against these five kings and they destroy them and they grab the people, they grab the possessions and they take them with them and they head back up north. And it would have just been a historical story of the First World War if it wasn't for verse 12 where it says they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. What they didn't know was they were involving a man of God, a man who had faith and trust in God. 
And off they went and the one who escaped came to Abram and told him all the what happened. And if you just put yourself in Abram's shoes for a minute, he could have very easily have chosen to do nothing. You know what? That is Lot's fault. You know, he went and chose to live with those people and this is God's punishing him, surely. You know, he could have said, well, there's such a huge army, they just defeated all these kings. How am I meant to take 318 men and knock them off? It's like crazy. What if something happens to me? What about the promise from God? Sort of legitimate reasons in our eyes. Maybe reasons we might use today for not trusting God in difficult circumstances. But Abram's decision to go shows that he trusts in God, that he had a closeness with God. And I'll explain. We, we don't always have days sometimes to pray about decisions that we make. There are times when we are confronted with a decision that we need to make quickly, whether it be to talk to someone or to go in the opposite direction perhaps. And in these times, the decisions that we make will be a reflection of our trust and faith in God and our closeness to him. If we rarely read the Bible, if we rarely spend time with God in prayer and meditate upon how much he loves us and what he's done for us and just soak it in, if we really do these things then when we're confronted with these decisions I think we'll rarely make a godly decision. We will be making decisions that are about self-interest, preserving self and what is in my control instead of trusting God. So why should we read the Bible? Why should we be praying? Why should we spend time with God? Because to be like Jesus is to be Christ-like in the way that we think, in the decisions we make and the way that we live. Spending time and to be disciplined and to be obedient to God's word means a close relationship with him, means a, a day by day, moment by moment, trusting him no matter the circumstances and when the time comes when you need to say, what do I need to do? What, what am I going to do now? I haven't got time to look for a sign, to think about is God going to open a door or not? I, just, I need to make a decision. And I think it's times like that that we can see within ourselves, are we, have we got a mind that is like Christ? Are we in tune with what God wants in our life? Are we being obedient to his word? to his promises, trusting and having faith in him. This decision, I think, 
you know, goes on and shows that Abraham had learned from previously not trusting God. We saw Abram when he had been, uh, he, he left the place he was in where God had called him to when the famine struck. He went to Egypt and he lied about Sarah being his, uh, his wife because he was worried about his, uh, his own life. So he said, this is my sister. Yet now you see that he has learned that he needs to trust God and from those moments to now he's taking a small amount of men against a large army because he trusts God. That he will be faithful to his promises no matter the circumstances. These are life-threatening circumstances. And, but you can see the maturity and the growth in, in Abram. I'm really grateful this week that, it, we've, that I've been able to look at this passage and study it because um, it's helped me in a circumstance. You know, and, and on Monday night I got a phone call from Dad and he talked about our, my beautiful little niece, uh, Missy, four years old, who had come up with a lot of bruising all over her body and she was taken to the hospital and it was told that the worst case scenario which you know you sort of your mind always rushes to is um, leukemia and uh, it's never nice to think but you're always thinking I'm always for me anyway I'm thinking oh the worst case oh no this is terrible and you know we got before God and we prayed about it and I had this passage in mind just because I've been looking at it um, and it dawned on me, it, it, it really convinced me that I don't have any control over the circumstances but I trust God that if it is the worst case scenario he knows what's going to happen. He knows that it's going to happen and he has a purpose in it. Um, and I'm not sure if perhaps I hadn't looked at this passage I might have thought that way so quickly this week and it prompted me probably to pray more for my family this week than perhaps I have in the last six months. Um, thank, we thank God because it wasn't the worst case scenario. It was a one in 10,000 disease called ITP which I don't have any idea about. I'm sure there are some medical people here that know more about it than me. So Abram sets off with his 318 trained men and takes on these powerful armies and conquers them, takes the people, takes the possessions and heads on back down south. And you can just imagine the praise and the adoration of all those people that had been taken captive, that they're now experiencing freedom from this one man who led this small army of 318 men and you can just imagine as they walked down back down south what they would have been saying to him how great you are this is unbelievable so good you're the best what an achievement what a victory Proverbs 27 21 says this the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold 
but man is tested by the praise he receives. So it says there that the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram. So the people were coming down and the king of Sodom comes out and he must be able to see them coming. And we'll find out what the king of Sodom has to offer and say to Abram. But in the meantime, something funny happens. Well, it's not really funny but it's a God thing. God intervenes and he sends in Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes in. Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, where we get Jerusalem, offers spiritual blessing. Now we don't know much about Melchizedek, apart from there's a bit more mentioned about him in Hebrews 7, if you want to read about that, but this is in his life, this is what we read about him, that he is a God-fearing man whose name means king of righteousness. And God is using him in this story of Abram, in this particular place in Abram's life, for a purpose. Now we don't know what's happened in Melchizedek's life up until this point to what took him to be here in this place, but we know God has placed him there. We don't know what sort of difficulties that Melchizedek has had to deal with, what he's had to what does he confront to, to mature and grow but that he is a priest of the God Most High. He's a man of faith. And God has done a work in his heart and in his mind and in his life to bring him to the place where he is, that he was obedient and available to do what God wanted him to do. And in this case it was to meet Abram, a foreigner, Sometimes we can be a bit of a loss as to why God would want us to move from here to there or to place or to change jobs from one place to another. We don't always get the big picture. We don't always see it, do we, as God sees it. But it's important to know that when God calls us to act, that we be obedient and trust in the fact that he knows all things and that he is working out all things for those who love him. So Melchizedek was there to encourage Abram and to remind him of why he took 318 men and how he took 318 men and destroyed and was victorious against these kings because it was the creator God most high who did it for, who did it through him. And I believe it was God intervening at this time just to make sure that Abram was grounded, that he realised as much as the praise and the adoration from the people that were coming with him that he just rescued, just remember why you were victorious. In these circumstances, it was God who helped you take, uh, conquer all the, against all these men with your 318. And so he meets with the king of Sodom who offers earthly possessions and riches. He offers him the goods of the people, take all the possessions, 
you know, and I'll just take the people back and we'll start again. And it's interesting to note Abram's response. Would it have been the same if he didn't come across Melchizedek? I don't know, but Abram's response is to say, no, no, I'm not accepting anything from you. I won't allow an evil king like you to say I made Abram rich. Now, how do we accept praise? You know, we often talk about the importance of encouragement and building each other up and that is, that is super important. But then how do we accept it? Because that is just as important. When we do something well at school and at, in the home or at work, at church. I think we all could do with a reminder every now and then of why we're able to achieve the things that we do achieve. That all good things come from God and that without him the Bible says we can do nothing. Chapter 15 turns our attention back to the dialogue between God and Abram that we have read about in uh, chapter 13, uh, sorry, in chapter 12 and then also at the end of 13 regarding the promises, the promises of a great nation being started out of Abram. Abram seems to be afraid, possibly because he's still childless and he's thinking about this promise and thinking, how's it going to work? How is it ever going to work? Um, the other reason he could be afraid is because he's just conquered against all these kings, conquered them and brought back these people that um, they had taken capture. And as is the case still in the Middle East, retaliation, as was back then, was a real thing. That if you went to war against someone, it wouldn't be long before they retaliated against you and now they know a bit more maybe about this man, Abram. They might be coming back after him. And so he's got these, this to worry about and he's thinking about the promises. How's that going to come to fulfilment? I haven't got kids. There might be people chasing me to kill me. And God meets Abram's fear with a promise. Do not be afraid, he says. Now, when I tell my kids to not be afraid, if they're saying, I'm scared, Daddy, like, then you need to give something else. You can't just say, don't be afraid. Like, I've got to give them something else to back it up, you know, some assurance, some and it might be, it's alright guys, don't be afraid, like Collingwood will come back in the second half, you know. <laughs> Done it before, can do it again. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, quite often, uh, you know, as kids are, occasionally scared of the dark and, you know, just don't be afraid, but mummy and daddy are here. Just the promise that mummy and daddy are here is often enough to get them back to sleep. God promises Abram, I am your shield. Do not be afraid, I am your shield, your very great reward. 
I reckon it's just what Abram needed to hear. Funny how God knows just what to say and when to say it. But Abram's response displays doubt. And while he goes on to say, I understand God that you're my protection. Okay, I get that, but what's that going to mean if I never have children? What's that actually mean if this promise never is fulfilled through me that it gets passed on to my servant Eliza? What purpose really am I going to be protected? What, why? I, I want children. And so he takes Abram outside and he says to him in verse 5, Look up to the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. In the Milky Way, which is our little galaxy that the earth is placed within, um, in the Milky Way there are 300 billion stars. I don't, I don't sort of grasp that number. It's just a big number to sort of wow you, 300 billion stars. And that's in the Milky Way one galaxy. But I'm only, and I'm getting this from this, uh, from on, if you Google the Hubble Space Aircraft, uh, whatever, Hubble Space thing, um, it says that there's a minimum, a minimum 100 billion galaxies minimum. Some sites are saying up to three, four hundred billion galaxies and we're one galaxy with 300 billion stars. So go on, try to count them. Maybe not from Melbourne where the lights are everywhere and the pollution is bad but maybe jump on the internet, look at some of these pictures and start counting. Or as Abram is also told, count the grains of sand, the dust, so your descendants will be. The number is mind-boggling. It's not really a number that we can understand but it's what God spoke into existence in creation and it's his promise to Abram. And it says that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram was made right before God not by what he did with 318 men but he was made right by faith in believing God in what he said. Verse 7 goes on to say, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Another promise or sort of confirmation of an earlier promise is, is God giving the land that he chose for Abram and his descendants. And Abram seeks confirmation. Um, it might be fair to say that he was doubting again, that he showed doubt again in his question um, but it's also 
um, important to note that at the time it was, also, uh, it was very common to expect a sign, to expect a sign of confirmation of a promise or of something that was said. What a patient God we have, isn't it? What a patient God Abram had here and the same God who is patient with us day by day. I'm sure you can sit here this morning and say, yeah, Abram, bit of doubt there. But at the same time, look at your own life and say, what a patient God I have who's been patient with me when I've failed, when I've doubted, when I haven't trusted. God obliges to Abram's need and calls on him to set up a contract, a covenant to do something that Abram understood would bring assurance from God to him about this promise. In those days these covenants or a contract were, were made by sacrificial animals, sacrificing animals, um, a little bit different to these days. We have pen and paper but they had split carcasses sort of lining them up opposite each other down a row and the people who were taking the contract covenant would come and hold hands, would go on and walk down through those carcasses repeating the contract covenant. And the symbolism was very simple and plain that it was so serious this covenant that it was sealed with blood and it placed the responsibility upon the ones who were walking between the animals. And it was understood at the time that if I break this covenant I'm expected to end up as the animals that have been sacrificed here. But on this occasion Abram is off to the side. He's not walking down with God. And I just want to read it in verse 12. It says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. I'll leave it there. So this one was different. It wasn't Abram and God walking through these animals. It was Abram off to the side and God walking through the animals. It was God taking responsibility for this covenant, this promise. God had no intention on placing responsibility upon Abram to do anything to fulfil 
the promises of God. God said, I'm going to deliver. I'm taking this covenant with you but the responsibility isn't upon you. You just need to believe. I'm going to do what I say I do. And when God says something, it gets done. That doesn't mean that it gets done when we want it to get done. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be difficult circumstances along the way to get to what Jesus has promised, to what God had promised to Abram. And it says it there that this isn't a promise that's going to happen next week. Israelites are going to face difficult circumstances 400 years of slavery. But as Abram believed by faith in what God was promising and what God was saying, so it is true that we must believe by faith this morning in the promises of God. See, God has made a covenant, a new covenant that we remembered this morning. Not sealed with blood of animals, but with the blood of Jesus Christ and his death. And this morning there is a wonderful promise of salvation that is by faith in Jesus. That if you believe by faith in what Jesus Christ has done, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that you will be forgiven, that you will be made right with God, in a relationship with God, that he is preparing a place for you. And it is not by what you can do for God. It is not a covenant where you had to walk with God and take responsibility for what the promise is all about. No, no, God has done everything. Just as he did with Abram, so he is doing with us. You don't have to perform or do anything for salvation. But as Abram believed by faith, so we must come this morning and believe by faith in what God has done. He has done everything that we may know him. Do you know him this morning? Do you know him as your Saviour and your Lord? Will you pray? Lord and God, you are a patient God with us who perseveres and gives us a second chance time and time again. Thank you for doing everything for us, not expecting us to be responsible for our own salvation but you sent your son Jesus Christ who shed his blood and died in our place, for our sins, that we would be in relationship with you. Lord, would it just lay it upon our hearts this morning if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith in you, that they would be challenged to know that they don't need to do anything apart from believe by faith in what you've done for them. Would we come to grow and mature in our faith in you, that we would trust you day by day, 
no matter the circumstances, just to know that you are in control and you have a purpose in and through everything. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.